In the previous chapter, John tells us of the judgment at the end of history. Satan, the deceiver, the beast, the false prophet, and those who threw their allegiance to them, along with death and Hades, have been thrown into the lake of fire. The final battle has been fought, and the Lamb has been victorious. So now what? A new heaven and a new earth, along with a new Jerusalem. That's what. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, there are essentially two ways of interpreting this new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. Uh, One is to take everything literally, which, as you see, as we go through this chapter, I think it's kind of hard to do that. But anyway, the other is to read it figuratively. Now, if you were to ask me, If I saw it as literal or figurative, I would answer yes. Because I believe that there will be a literal new heaven and new earth. There will be a new creation. Having said that, I also think that there are figurative elements in the midst of all of this. Now, the idea of a new creation is not new. Sorry, but that's the way it turned out. The idea of a new creation is actually introduced earlier in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Or literally in Greek, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He also states in Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that launches this new creation. In this chapter, we see the transition from the defeat of Babylon and the eradication of evil to a new heaven and a new earth with a new Jerusalem. The old heaven and earth have passed away. John also writes that the sea is no more. This could mean that there are no bodies of salt water, but I don't believe that that is the case. Throughout Scripture, including Revelation, when we look at the sea, the sea is a place of chaos. One of the reasons why the disciples were so terrified when the storms came up on the sea because they thought possibly something was coming from the abyss to swallow them up. The primary chaos agents are Satan and those who follow Satan. They've been crushed. They've been thrown into the lake of fire. So there's no no chaos in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, verses 2 through 8 can serve as sort of an outline for the rest of Revelation. The progression of thought in these verses and the verses in the remaining chapters is very similar. Verse 2 speaks of the new Jerusalem, as do verses 9 to 21 in the same chapter. 
Verse 3 says that God dwells among men. Verses 22 to 27 carry that same idea. The first part of verse 5 describes the renewal of the world. So does chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. In the second half of verse 5, we have the statement that the words are faithful and true. And Revelation 21, 6 and 22, 11 to 15, carry similar ideas. God is reinforcing to John that these words are true. These words are correct. They're faithful. Finally, verse 8 of chapter 1 speaks of the final curse on the rebellious. And chapter 22, verses 18 and 19 do the same thing. In verse 2, John speaks of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down adorned as a bride for her husband. Isaiah 52, 1 speaks of the holy city. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall, be, so there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. The people of God have been looking for that renewed Jerusalem for centuries. We'll talk more on that later. In verses 3 and 4, we hear a voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Back in Leviticus chapter 26, God tells Israel, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Now that was conditional on their obedience. We know how that turned out. In Ezekiel 37, 27, the prophet tells of a time when my dwelling place, or my tabernacle, shall be with them, and I will indeed be their God, and they shall be my people. In the new heaven and earth, all tears will be wiped away. There will be no more death, no more sorrow or crying, and no more pain. 2 Timothy 1.10 states that Christ has abolished death. And John 11 tells us that whoever believes in Christ will never die. Because of this promise, we may and will mourn the loss of those we love. We will have aches and pains. I say that standing here with my hip crying out to me. Um, <laughs> but as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians... We do not sorrow as others who have no hope. The former things have passed away. I'm definitely looking forward to that. In verse 5, the one sitting on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Back in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that for the believer, the old things have passed away. And all things have become new. 
Being a Christian is not just a ticket to heaven or an assent to a set of beliefs or a set of rituals. All of life is being renewed as we participate in the new life of God. This renewal progresses until God makes all things new. Commentator and scholar Philip Schaefer wrote, Religion is not a single separate sphere of human life, but the divine principle by which the entire man is to be pervaded, refined, and made complete. It takes hold of him in his undivided totality, in the center of his personal being, to carry light into his understanding, holiness into his will, and heaven into his heart, and to, be, and to shed thus the sacred consecration of the new birth and the glorious liberty of the children of God over his whole inward and outward life. No form of existence can withstand the renovating power of God's spirit. There is no rational element that may not be sanctified, no sphere of natural life that may not be glorified. Now, this was written back in the 1800s. I think he might have been on to something. In verses 6 through 8, John contrasts two groups of people. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be their God, and he will be my son. It is done. It is finished. Jesus said that on the cross. This is being reiterated here in Revelation. All things have been made new by the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Those who thirst will be given water from the spring of life for free. It's already been paid for. Verse 7 echoes the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. Those who conquer, those who have been faithful, have the heritage of the king. God is their God, and they are his children. That's one group. The other group is found in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is a hard passage to read. So a lot of ink has been spilled through the centuries by folks much smarter than me about what these verses really mean. And I'm going to leave it at that. Verses 9 to 21 give us John's vision of the new Jerusalem. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. 
on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. <coughs> Excuse me. John goes on. And the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. We've seen that measuring rod in, I think it was Ezekiel, back a few chapters ago. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, excuse me, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Try to imagine that. I don't know that that we can with our, our tiny little minds. I'm talking about me, not you all. And there's a lot of imagery here that is drawn from the Old Testament. Remember, we've said a couple of times that John was probably the last Old Testament prophet. Well, a lot of his imagery comes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 52.1 calls Jerusalem the holy city and says that nothing uncircumcised or unclean will enter it. Now, we know that the uncircumcised and the unclean entered Jerusalem right up to its destruction in A.D. 70. And they still do today. So Isaiah has to be looking down the road. Isaiah reads, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall, shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Indeed, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. In verse 11, the light coming from the city is full of radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
In chapter 3 of his prophecy, Malachi describes those who fear God. On that day, I will make them my jewels, as some translations have it. In verse 12, the city is described as surrounded by a great and high wall. In Isaiah 60, verse 8, God says that the spiritual Jerusalem shall call your walls salvation. In Zechariah 2, 5, God states, I will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. The wall of the city has 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes written on them. Isaiah 60, 18 states, and your gates shall be called praise. You want to guess which tribe's name means praise? It's Judah. The gate, uh, in Revelation, the gates bear the names of all 12 tribes. The gates may signify that entrance into the city or salvation is through Jesus Christ, who came from the Jewish people, particularly the tribe of Judah. The gates open to the north, the south, the east, and the west, signifying universal access into the kingdom. In Luke 13, 29, Jesus says, They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. The twelve foundations of the city are the same as the foundations of the church, the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Verses 15 through 18 describe the measuring of the city. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. City lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, or 12,000 furlongs, or 1,500 miles. One, um, he also measured its walls, 144 cubits, or 216 feet, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And its length and width and height are the same. Now that's, if you take this literally, that is an unbelievably massive city. It's 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. I'm not sure which layer of the atmosphere that's getting up to, but it's, it's getting up to pretty high. This is one of the ones I tend to take figuratively. One commentator writes that the numbers are symbolic. The multiples of 12 being a reference to the majesty, the vastness, and the perfection of the church. And, of course, 12 is the number denoting the tribes of Israel and the disciples and all that. That number 12 is all through Scripture. And the shape of the city is also the same as the shape of the Holy of Holies in the, in the tent, in the tabernacle, in the temple. Next, we have the description of the bride's adornment. This looks back to Isaiah 54, 11 and 12. O oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. 
I believe that the description of the precious gems, precious gems in the foundation is reminiscent of both the gems on the breastplate of the high priest and the apostles, speaking of the leadership of the people of God. The 12 pearls making up the gates may speak of what is pictured in Paul's words in Acts 14.22 when he writes, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. If you know how a pearl is made, it's through little pieces of sand getting in the oyster. And it's, it's tribulation for the oyster. And the oyster forms the pearl around that. So this could be what the pearl is talking about. The streets of the city are pure gold, like transparent glass. This could represent the way of life, the path of those in the New Jerusalem. Verses 23 to 27 speak of the city as having no need of the sun or moon, because the glory of God is the light in which the nations will walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it, and its gates will never be shut. Nothing unclean will ever enter the city. And this was prophesied by Isaiah back in chapter 60. The city sits on a high mountain. Why a high mountain? There are no high mountains in Israel. Mount Zion, where the temple sat, is not really very high. There's no mountain at Megiddo. Michael Heiser makes the point that the mountain imagery is found in the Old Testament in reference to God's dwelling place. Ezekiel 28 speaks of Eden as the holy mountain of God. Eden is a garden, but it's also a mountain. In Ezekiel 43.7, in the midst of the vision of the temple, Ezekiel hears a voice coming from inside the temple saying, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places. In the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was called the throne. It's also called God's footstool. This prophecy is fulfilled in Revelation 21, but it's not the temple. It's the heavenly city, Jerusalem. It's the renewed Eden. Now think about what the temple was to Israel. It was a place where heaven and earth met. It's the place where God's people came to be in his presence. Now, where do heaven and earth meet now? Right here. In believers. We are called the temple of God. Right now, we are where heaven and earth meet. In Revelation 21, the entire city of Jerusalem, and I believe the entire new creation, is where heaven and earth meet. Scott McKnight writes, We will be with one another eternally, flourishing in an eternal city. Justice will be the way of the Lamb for all. Peace will be the way of the Lamb for all. Love 
will be the way of the Lamb for all, forever and ever, ever abounding and flourishing in glory and love. So let me close with the last paragraphs of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.